Well, hello, Sun Valley Church. It is good to be with you, uh, such as with is right now. I am in Portland, Oregon, uh, preaching to one person in an empty sanctuary. Uh, most of you are in Yakima, uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, let, let's open up our Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 14. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me briefly? Uh, Father, we ask now that you open us up to your word and open your word up to us, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these are strange times, aren't they? Uh, We live in the midst of a pandemic. The coronavirus has has altered everything that we are doing right now. Uh, And the toll has been devastating. Uh, Last count this morning, over 50,000 people had died of the coronavirus here in the United States. Over 869,000 people were afflicted with it. Uh, that, that is those who have tested positive for it. And over 26 million Americans have filed for unemployment over the last five weeks. That's a, that's a number that corresponds to when the country began aggressive measures to combat the spread of the virus. And the reactions are, are so bizarre as to be almost comical if, if they weren't so tragically true. We, new phrases have entered into our vocabulary, like social distancing, flatten the curve, PPE, and N95 respirator. Six weeks ago, I wouldn't have known what any of those things were, but now they're just part of our daily vocabulary. You walk into a bank, strangely enough, and tellers are the ones wearing masks, and as do most people that I encounter on the streets of Portland. And, and this is just the new normal. It, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with keeping Portland weird. Seems that the only part of the economy right now that's flourishing is alcohol sales, and which in nearly every state of the union enjoyed record highs in the month of March. So it, virtually every aspect of our lives have been impacted. Schools are, are shut down. This year's seniors will not enjoy the graduation ceremony that they've earned. This, uh, our, our society is in a major event fast. We don't gather. We don't go to theaters. I, 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 mean, I mean, I feel like I'm in sports detox right now. And, and churches, they can't do what their name implies, a symbol. So congregants gather around their computers on Sunday morning to worship together in the solitude of their own homes. And I hasten to add that without access to haircuts, every pastor today has become a big-haired preacher on television. We're finding the most challenges, though, most of the challenges, to be relational. We are, after all, social beings. We're created in the image of God to enjoy community, and even the most intense of introverts is struggling. 
And now we're beginning to speculate what life will be like when things return to normal, if they ever will. It seems like the perfect time to do some soul searching, to evaluate priorities. And in fact, many people are already doing so. And, 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 and I wonder whether the church is properly postured to provide answers. Do we have the moral authority? Do we have the credibility to speak? Sun Valley Church, we've been preaching through the book of Philippians, a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Philippi about 2,000 years ago. And they were in the midst of trial and trauma and, and persecution. And Paul himself was unjustly imprisoned for his faith in Christ. And, and his counsel to his readers of this letter is particularly appropriate for us today. Paul's advice to them in the midst of all that they were going through was to rejoice. And so if, if you're listening to this sermon and, and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I would invite you to consider the words of the Apostle Paul. Are you satisfied with the perspective that the world is offering on all things related to life in a pandemic? Or do they ring hollow, maybe even upside down? What would real wisdom and a divine perspective look like? For the rest of you, if you do understand yourselves to be Christians, I, I would ask you to consider your attitude and disposition during this pandemic and evaluate that by the certain realities that Jesus Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God and will return to make everything right. Do your actions today demonstrate a hope born of that fact that will happen on that day? Or are you slipping into the worldly pattern of faithless and hopeless grumbling and self-pity? By way of context, before we launch into this, if, if you have been following this sermon series, you know that early on, Paul called for partners in the gospel. And so much of this letter is, is about what Paul desires of those who would partner with him in the gospel. And then more immediately, in verse 12 of chapter two, he called for those who are partnering with him in the gospel to work out their salvation. And so the, the question for us is, what kind of partners is Paul looking for? And, and how does one work out their salvation in the midst of this? In chapter one, there were plenty of bad examples of, of people. And in chapter two, Jesus Christ is offered up as an example of humility, which is a striking thing, as you know, because Jesus Christ is said to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the exalted one, and yet he humbled himself. So humility is one of the things that, that marks a partner in the gospel. As we look at verses 12 through, or I'm sorry, verses 14 through 18, what we'll find is this. Here, here's my big idea. It's this, partners in the gospel orient their lives by the word of life and the day of Christ, not according to the world's broken values. Partners in the gospel orient their lives by the word of life and the day of Christ, not according to our world's broken values. By way of structure in these, these 
five verses that we'll look at, verses 14 through 18, we're going to see that Paul gives a command that's negative. He prohibits something. Then he provides a purpose for the command. Then he'll give an explanation and an example of of how he wants this command to be obeyed. And then at the end, he, he will reiterate the command, this time phrasing it positively. So verse 14, we're told this, do all things without grumbling or questioning without grumbling or disputing. Do everything, Paul says. And we we might ask of Paul's command, could you be a little more precise? I mean, aren't there modifiers or qualifiers? Maybe even a set of exemptions, especially for people living in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, surely, surely you're not serious that we're to do all without grumbling or disputing, grumbling or questioning. But now, Paul literally said, do all. And we might think, do what, we might ask. And, and the answer is, anything. That is, if you're doing, then you're to do it without grumbling or disputing. And you think, well, well, well maybe I'll just do nothing. And, and then, then I can grumble and complain because it's easy to do nothing in the midst of a lockdown and a pandemic. But no, doing nothing is actually doing something. And once you begin to complain, you're doing something anyway, and you're not supposed to do that. So do all things without grumbling or disputing is really an absolute prohibition for the Christian on grumbling or disputing, regardless of your circumstances. Why is that? Well, grumbling gives voice, whether vocalized or not. Maybe you're just grumbling to yourself, to what's in our hearts. And in it, we express, again, if only to ourselves, our frustration and our our lack of contentment with the circumstances or places in which we find ourselves. Disputing or questioning, that's... That's the public arguing, the, the, the complaining that seeks to bring others to the place that we are in. It is the attempt to bring about a change in the situation where, where others will submit to our way of thinking and to our desired outcomes. Now, in, in a general sense, there, there's really nothing wrong for a Christian to, to dispute or to argue or to question. That in itself is not inherently sinful. But when it's combined with grumbling, which is always negative, then those two things together mean that Paul is talking about the negative side of disputing, the negative side of of questioning, and Paul clearly forbids it here. Now, the Lord has a long track record of voicing his displeasure against the grumbling of his people. Recall back in the Old Testament when the Lord had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. They are in the wilderness and they begin to grumble and complain. Listen to Numbers chapter 14, verses two through four. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. God had just rescued them. They're on the cusp of going to the promised land. They, they see the, the, the foes that they will have to fight. And it seems like it's too much for them. And so they grumble and complain against the Lord, against his salvation. And they want to go back to Egypt. Verse 26, we get the response of the Lord to this. And and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? 
I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Now, why would God care so much about grumbling? Especially even if we do it like under our breath, right? Well, the reason this is so serious is because God is the sovereign Lord. And our grumbling at the circumstances is really directed against the Lord's providence. We're saying in effect, God, you may be on your throne, but we're not satisfied with how you are exercising your authority. And when we dispute, when we question, we are seeking to bring others into that rebellious way of thinking. Well, what about today? How does this work in the world of a COVID-19 pandemic, this world that we find ourselves in right now? How are we supposed to respond if we can't grumble and complain? Well, Paul tells us that in verse 15. It's the purpose for his command so that you might stand out in a broken world. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. First, let's look at the backdrop. The world is crooked and twisted, we're told. And what does that mean? What crooked means? Crooked, it's what you would expect, but it also means unscrupulous and, and, and dishonest. Twisted means depraved or perverted or misleading. And, and if you think about it, these are dire descriptions of the world order and the generations therein. The, the values of the world, the way of seeing reality, God says are by definition twisted and perverted. Nothing makes sense. It's, it, it's like world, it, it, I'm sorry, it's like living in a world where values are backward, where, where everybody and everything tells you that up is down and wrong is right. Our world in direct contradiction to the evidence provided by God tells us that there is no God. Or even if there is, he's weightless and inconsequential. We're, we're told that the self is the true God, really, when we get down to what matters and, and our lives should be lived in service to that God, ourself. We're, we're told that the, the ultimate eschatological goal is self-actualization and self-sacrifice is for the weak. Uh, we're told that our bodies are not determinative of our gender, that, uh, that, that, that being true to how we perceive ourselves, again, in this crooked and twisted generation, trumps and then creates reality. And if that's not acceptable to some, the rest are told that the body's the most important thing, that beautifying it, adorning it, preserving it and saving it no matter what, that's the priority. We're told that biology or, or history have, have nothing to do with sexuality, but pe- personal preference dictates all. We're taught that the end always justifies the means and we make our decisions according to all these dictates only to arrive at the end feeling terrible, 
dissatisfied, unfulfilled. And then we look back and we see a swath of destruction, pain, and death in our wake. Of course, we have to admit that, that, that in the midst of this pandemic, we do see glimpses of truth that break in as people begin to live not for themselves, but for the sake of others. They are sacrificing. They are courageous. And, and, and we laud them. I'm not sure if it's the practice in Yakima, but the practice in Portland and cities of other cities around the, the country is at seven o'clock every night to applaud. Uh, just go out and make noise, bang pots, blow horns, clap and yell and cheer as a, as a sign of appreciation to our healthcare workers and, and, and to anyone else who is, who, who is putting themselves in, in harm's way for the sake of others. This is, is noble, I think, and, and it's good, but is it consistent with the values of the world? At least the world that we live in. This world that we live in, when those glimpses of truth and beauty don't break in, it reminds me of those houses of confusion that you saw in like amusement parks or in as roadside attractions where, where everything is so tilted and distorted, so askew that, 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 that by the time you get to where they want you to be, balls look like they roll uphill and, and, and small things look large. And, and, and of course, in these places, the laws of physics like gravity and optics, they, they still apply. They still apply, but, but, but these roadside attractions and amusement parks, they attempt to retrain your brain to give you a, a new perspective so that things appear to be breaking the laws of physics. Perspective is huge, isn't it? The scriptures describe the generation of fallen humanity as crooked and twisted, not to be trusted, offering a faulty perspective by which you're asked to interpret all things around you. Now, the scriptures do affirm that the world does offer a perspective that is helpful, but only because it's so dark. The perspective of darkness, which will contrast brilliantly with the ways of the people of God. And that contrast is clear by the identification of the people of God as the children of God we see here. You see, Jesus Christ has made possible our adoption as children of the living God. And that is the most fundamental identity of Christians. There are many ways to describe our changed relationship with God, a changed relationship between God and humanity, but none of them is as wonderful or as blessed as being adopted into the family of God where God is our father and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with adoption. Uh, we, uh, my family, we have three uh, boys that we adopted. And over and over again, when they first joined us, we kept telling them, you're Miles boys now. Miles boys don't talk that way. Miles boys don't act that way. You see, th- their family identity had changed and so their behavior had to change too. Christian, it's the same with you. Your family identity has forever changed. You have a new forever home and your behavior has to change to line up with that reality. You're children of the king now. Children of the king do not grumble. Children of the king do not dispute or question or complain. And then Paul describes how 
children of God are to behave. And, and the terms that he uses in this verse to describe the character of God's children, three of them, be blameless, innocent, without blemish. What does he mean by that? Well, probably much, but at least in our immediate context, it should mean that no one, no one, no one should be able to find fault with us for griping or bickering. To be pure is, would be to not mix our speech, which is supposed to be seasoned with grace. Don't mix it with negative complaints or divisive arguments. And to be without blemish is what God has planned from all eternity past. It's the very thing that God chose us in Christ for. After all, according to Ephesians 5, Christ is working, quote, to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And Paul tells us in this verse that that when God's people behave in such a way, in contrast to the crooked and twisted generations that always populate the world, the contrast is like a diamond against black velvet or as a bright star lighting up the night sky. Now this of course makes sense because Jesus had claimed that he himself was the light of the world. He he told his followers to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. In our passage, Paul says that one significant way that we so shine is to control our tongues to change our attitudes about our current circumstances, whatever they might be. Now, again, unfortunately, God's people have a lengthy track record of not always providing such a sharp contrast that provides light to those around them. Paul remembers this as he writes to the Philippians and, and he quotes Moses who had chastised the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. And in this passage, that next generation of Israelites are on the Eastern shores of the, uh, or banks, I should say, of the Jordan River. And, and they're poised to go in to take the promised land. And he reminds them of this, Deuteronomy 32, verse four and five, the rock, God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, the Israelites on the other hand, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation, Moses wrote. The Israelites who had fallen in the wilderness, the Israelites who had disobeyed, they had become just as crooked and depraved as the nations from which they came. The holiness and righteousness of God was to be demonstrated to the nations by virtue of Israelite justice. The the, the kindness and, and mercy of Israel was to be a demonstration to the nations that the God of Abraham was unlike the gods of the pagan nations. And if we were to keep reading that passage, we'd find that Israel itself was adopted by God, an act of great mercy. Look at verse 12 of Deuteronomy 32. He found him in a desert land. This is God speaking of Israel. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. But Israel had 
forfeited her adoption due to her unbelief and then the behavior that followed and their rejection was demonstrated by the death of a generation in the wilderness. Now we might be tempted to ask if Israel can forfeit her adoption, well, can we? And the answer is no, no. The nation of ethnic Israel was adopted by God formally by the Mosaic covenant. It was a covenant that the nation was not able to keep due not to the inadequacies of God's promises, but to the broken and twisted hearts of those who were supposed to keep the covenant. Christian, you need to know that your adoption is secure by virtue of a better covenant with better promises. Although right now you may not be able to live up to the stipulations of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, your brother, has kept them all. He has been sent by God as the king of the kingdom of God, a king who came to create a people by saving a people and then leading that people to life and peace. Jesus Christ came by appointment of God to reconcile his people to God. He lived a perfect life and then he gave up his life as a ransom for the sins of his people. His death was sufficient to pay for the penalty for your sin, making our forgiveness not only possible, but certain. And because he himself was innocent, death was not able to hold him and the king burst forth from the grave. Now all those who confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And you are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That transfer comes with the giving of God's spirit to regenerate, to to seal our adoption, to sanctify the king's people, transforming them into people who will forever live obediently to the king's ways. That is the gospel that is preached Sunday after Sunday from the pulpit at Sun Valley Church. And that is the gospel that has the power to save if you will believe. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, Christian, though your obedience is no doubt not perfect now, the destiny of the king's people is to live without sin, to live without rebellion, and certainly to live without grumbling or disputing. So in the meantime, Paul gives some advice on how to make progress in advance of that day when Christ returns. He gives an explanation and an example by the word of life and by the day of Christ. Look at Philippians 2, verses 16 and 17. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So two things Paul says, keep in mind. One, you do this, you do this by holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is the word that gives life. It's it's, it's the word of God, including and focused upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that I just went over. Uh, We know that both the Old and New Testaments affirm that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Psalm 119, that that great psalm that celebrates the word of God has 11 explicit references to how the word of God gives life. And there are a myriad of other verses in that psalm that make allusions to the same idea. And in, in our current circumstances right now in the midst of this pandemic, they make it all the more important that we hold fast to the word of God surrounded by a crooked and twisted generation in a world that tells us that wrong is right and up is down, we must cling tenaciously to the promises of God. We are to live by faith even when all of the forces, no, especially when all of the forces of darkness are arrayed against us. We must believe in our hearts that it is better to give than to receive. We must believe that love conquers hatred and that greed contra the wisdom of Gordon Gecko is not good. More than anything else, we must believe that God is sovereign, that he's all powerful, that he's holy, all loving. And, and those who belong to Christ are servants of the great king. They are held in the king's mighty hand and there is no better place to be than right there. Wherever Jesus decides, that there might be for you and for me. Now, I understand that such can be hard in our COVID-19 world where, where people are sick, where, where people are losing their jobs, when, when the future looks so uncertain. And so because of that, it's more important that we hold fast to the word of God. You, you read the word of God, you, you meditate on his promises, you, you breathe the word of God, you speak the word of God to one another, you live the word of God, you believe it. That is what it is to hold fast to the word of life. And, and we do that today because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for faith. Tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday is not coming back. We are called to believe today. And we do that because of the only other day that matters, that day, the day of Christ. You do this by holding fast to the word of life today. And secondly, you do this by living for the day of Christ. It's often been said that there are only two days that matters, this day and that day. We orient ourselves in this dark world full of a crooked and twisted generation today, according to the certain reality of that day, the return of Christ, because Jesus is coming back. And that will be the true return of the King. His, he promises to make everything right. He promises to judge the living and the dead. He promises to live with his people forever in the glorious kingdom of God. And on that day, we, the people of the king, will be freed, not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. That we will be so Christ-like that the very thought of sin the very thought of grumbling and complaining will be unheard of where every fiber of our new and glorified bodies will desire the good because the good is understood to be really and truly good. And then as we see, Paul offered himself as an example. See, he, he had labored ever since he had known Christ in light of that day. He, he wants to be proud on that day, the day of Christ. Paul is jealous for, not jealous of, 
the Philippian believers. He, he had taught them the gospel and he had discipled them along the way. He, he is their good shepherd. He served as an under shepherd for the great shepherd himself. And he wants to see all of them to the finish line of faith one day at a time, but each day lived in anticipation of that day, the day of Christ. He doesn't want to feel like he has wasted his time, that he has ran or labored in vain. Now, Paul knew that the end was nearing for him. But rather than laud his own incredible and faithful service all over the world, he suggests that he's more like a drink offering being poured out on the sacrificial altar of the Philippian service. Now, drink offerings were typically the last of the offerings added onto the more substantial and weighty offerings. And, and this is Paul's humble opinion of himself. I mean, he's the apostle Paul, but he's, he, he, he says that he's basically just adding the finishing touches to the weighty sacrifice of service that the Philippians are already making. He is ministering for them and he is ministering alongside of them. What he wrote to the Corinthians is true of his, his dealings with the, with the Philippians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so then he comes full circle in verses 17 and 18 again, and he reissues the command this time positively. Before he said, do all things without grumbling or complaining, without grumbling or disputing. And now in Philippians 2, 17 and 18, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, how do we do that in a coronavirus world? Are we supposed to, to, to close our eyes, to, to bury our head in the sand and, and just wish that the whole thing would go away, thinking happy thoughts until it does? Now, there are many things in the Bible that are prescribed that require faith, but we are never asked to be silly or naive or stupid or ignorant with regard to the state of the world, assuming a, a Pollyanna-esque view of things. Why? We have to remember that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we must remember that God is good. And our loving God is Lord over all, all of our circumstances, including the evil that is in this world. Now that does not mean that we thank God for evil as though evil is a good thing to be thanked for, thankful for. No, I rightly th- thinking we, we grieve evil we protest evil and we fight against evil. And that would include the coronavirus. But the command to rejoice does not mean that we don't grieve or lament or pour out our hearts to God in the midst of suffering. Re- Christian rejoicing is not inconsistent with grief or lament. And, and, and if you think about it, it can be no other way in this world where the kingdom is both now and not yet, where Christ has conquered sin and death, but he has not returned to make all things new, so that in the meantime, his his people still feel the sting of sin and of death, if only for a little while. We rejoice not in evil, but we rejoice that God is sovereign, that he has allowed this evil into our lives, even ordained it for his good purposes. James 1 verses 2 through 4 is instructive here. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does this even mean in, in our COVID world? Well, let me, let, let me give you an example from, from, from my own life. Uh, many of you know that, that, that my wife is in the middle of treatment for cancer. And there have been procedures and a surgery and setbacks and, and eight horrific cycles of chemotherapy, which she just completed this last week. And now five more weeks of radiation and chemotherapy. And it's been brutal. And, and, and let me be clear, I, I hate cancer with every fiber of my being. So is Paul saying here that, that, that I'm supposed to thank God for cancer? Am I supposed to rejoice that my wife has cancer? And, and, to, and to that I say resoundingly, no, no. I, I protest that my wife has cancer and, and, and I fight against that cancer. But I do obey God by rejoicing that in the midst of this suffering, God is in the middle of it, turning it into something that will glorify him. And when God is glorified, it is always best for his children, ultimately. I remember um, on the day that my wife was diagnosed with cancer, I was in a convenience store, probably buying Mountain Dew or something like that. And, 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 and the people in front of me were complaining and griping with the, cash, with the cashier who was kind of just doing idle small talk with them. And it was just this gripe and complaint fest. I, I remember it vividly. And, and then I got up there and, and, and the clerk says, well, how about you? You know, now it's your turn to spill your guts about how horrible things are. And I remember saying to him, I, I have a blessed life. I have a blessed life. Uh, to, to complain would not only be dishonest, but it would be a, a sin because the Lord has been exceedingly kind to me. And then I go to my office two hours later and I get a phone call from my wife. Uh, she says, the, the doctor called, I have cancer. And boy, I tell you, if, if there are three bigger punch in the gut words in the English language, than I have cancer or you have cancer. I don't know what they are. Um, and, but that, that conversation I had with the, with the convenience store clerk, it, it kept coming back to me. I have a blessed life. And, and, and I remember thinking, once the, the smoke had cleared from my wife's diagnosis and I could think clearly, you know, nothing has really changed. Nothing ultimately. Christ is on his throne. He, he, he has promised to never leave or forsake me. He has promised to glorify himself. And, and, and if that means that, that I or we suffer for a moment, well, 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 that doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that God is preparing for us. That was true before my wife's diagnosis. It was true after my wife's diagnosis. And so I, I, I have to rejoice. I have to rejoice that, that God is at work. And, and I tell you, you know, we pray, it seems, every moment for my wife's healing. But, but in the midst of that, we rejoice. And, and when it's tough to rejoice, we ask God to give us joy and to give us faith so that we can obey him. Now, the same is true for all of us in the midst of this epidemic. I, I, I don't offer myself as an example of sterling faith, I offer myself as an example of someone with you who is fighting for faith and fighting for joy and fighting to obey these commands. Paul, after all, we consider his circumstances, the, the imprisoned apostle, the, the, the one who would give his life for the glory of Christ and the sake of Christ's church. He invited us, I mean, more than that, really, right? He commanded us his gospel partners, to be glad and rejoice with him. Paul had good reason to complain, at least by worldly standards. 
but by godly standards, he had good reason to rejoice. He outlined many of them already in his letter to the Philippians, the most significant of which was that Christ had died for sin and was now exalted and and given the knee that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is that day sort of thinking. So Paul had every good reason to rejoice even in his dire circumstances. And so do you, so do you. In the end, Paul commands the opposite of what he prohibited earlier. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. To grumble and dispute would be to call into question God's lordship. Instead, be glad and rejoice. And, and, and I know that is hard right now. These are scary times. I'm, I'm preaching a sermon to an iPhone in an empty church sanctuary even now because of the reality of a virus that's taking a horrible toll. It's a virus that has taken many lives. It has damaged the health, perhaps permanently, of many, many more. And it has taken an incredible economic toll already. And so I am not asking you in obeying this command to deny the reality of the coronavirus or of suffering in the world and pretend that everything is happy, happy, joy, joy. I am asking you, not to fall into the trap of seeing as the world sees, the perspective of a crooked and twisted generation. Instead, see the world as it actually is, a biblical way of looking, a world that is ravaged by rebellion, our rebellion, but a world that's deeply loved by a sovereign, holy, all-powerful God who is in the middle of your suffering. Do you want to know what God thinks about the coronavirus? Do you want to know what he thinks about what it's doing to you and your neighbors? Do you want to know how much God cares about you and what you're going through right now? Then look at the cross. That is God's answer to our suffering. Look at the cross. There is displayed the power of God as he takes suffering and the penalty of sin into himself. Look at the cross. There is displayed the holiness of God shining brightly in this darkest of times. Look at the cross. There is displayed the love of God for you. And when we look at the cross and and make no mistake, as we look at the cross, our vision might be obscured as we look through real tears of real grief that that are shed over the ravages of what sin and circumstances and things are doing in this world. Even so, when we look at the cross, our perspective has to change. There is no place in the Christian life for grumbling and disputing when the resurrected Christ is on his throne. And there is every reason to be glad and to rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the reality that you are good, that you are holy, that Jesus Christ, your son, has conquered sin and death. And we are grateful that even now he is in the process of building a people who will live forever, who will be with him forever. 
and are able to live with him forever because he is transforming us into his very own image. Father, we pray that we who know the Lord Jesus Christ would obey what Paul has said here and, 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 and that we would be able to do that because we would look to that day when Christ returns, that we would have faith and hold fast to your word today, that we would do everything without grumbling or complaining, but in everything we would rejoice and give thanks. We would do that today because of that certain day when Christ returns to make everything right. In the midst, we pray, give us faith and give us hope and give us joy. It's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.